welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Lots of news going on right now, and I have lots of thoughts. But this is not that type of podcast. This is an immigration one, and there was important news this week in the immigration world. From historian and professor Heather Cox Richardson's Letters from an American, which I recommend highly, by the way. On Tuesday, quote, The Justice Department announced that the United States had reached a settlement with the plaintiffs in the case of Miss L vs. ICE, a class action lawsuit filed in 2018 over the Trump administration's policy of separating parents and children at the southwest border to deter migrants. That policy, implemented in 2017 and 2018, resulted in more than 5,500 children being separated from their parents, end quote. And the Trump administration didn't really track where many of them had gone. The Biden administration has now settled this important case, fought by some of the best advocates in the immigration space, and on an issue that is just about at the top of important immigration issues. A bit slow again this week in the circuits with only two decisions. So I'll start off with the heady crimigration one. Enjoy it! First up is USAV Red, published by the Fourth Circuit on October 19th, 2023. This case is about crimes of violence and serious drug offenses. In the sentence enhancement context, of course, it's a biggie. B-I-G-P-O-P-P-A, no info for the D-E-A. All right, that was too much. Get oddly a bit appropriate for this decision. The case is about Maryland first-degree assault. U.S. citizen Mr. Red was convicted of it. He was then convicted of federal crimes, and he got his criminal sentence in prison enhanced by many years based on a finding that it... Maryland first-degree assault in violation of Maryland Code Article 27, Section 12A-1 is a violent felony. Violent felonies and immigration aggravated felony crimes of violence have materially identical definitions, so this is important 
immigration weirdos. After spending many years in prison, and now out of prison but on supervised release, Mr. Red moved to vacate his sentence based on the Supreme Court's recent decisions in the violent felony and crime of violence contexts. The district court was unimpressed. The Fourth Circuit reversed and remanded. Because you see, since Mr. Red was sentenced, the Supreme Court has found one of the violent felony statutes unconstitutional. That's the Johnson line of decisions. Similarly, the Supreme Court has found 18 U.S.C. Section 16b unconstitutional, at around the same time in Sessions v. DeMaia. For immigration purposes, that leaves only one crime of violence definition, 18 U.S.C. Section 16a, and it has similarly narrowed the ways to enhance a conviction in the sentence enhancement context for a violent felony. In relevant part, and just like with the immigration crime of violence definition, the ACCA violent felony sentence enhancement provision describes a conviction that, quote, has as an element the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force against the person of another, end quote. The immigration definition also includes the property of another, but that's rarely the issue. The issue, almost always, and like here, is whether the Maryland statute necessarily, in all contexts, requires physical force. Under Supreme Court precedent, quote, the phrase physical force means violent force, that is, force capable of causing physical pain or injury to another person, end quote. And after the Supreme Court's Borden decision two terms ago, that definition does not include statutes that can be committed merely recklessly. So what you got, Marilyn? Have you written your assault statute in a manner that makes it easier for prosecutors to convict and thereby permits conviction through, say, little force or reckless force? You have, like so many states, which in effect results in more people in prison in Maryland, but makes slightly less non-citizens removable for crimes of violence and results in slightly less sentences getting enhanced in federal court. Let's dive in. As an initial matter, first-degree Maryland assault is an indivisible statute, said the Fourth Circuit. The court goes on for many pages about what makes a statute divisible or indivisible, the means versus elements analysis, so I recommend the read if you need a refresher. In this case, the text of the Maryland statute alone didn't resolve the divisibility question. The text can be clear, but it just wasn't here. But before leaving the text, it was looking kind of indivisible because, for example, although there are two ways to commit assault, those two different subsections, quote, assign only one punishment for committing first-degree assault, end quote, no matter how you do it, indicates indivisibility, only one punishment. By the way, today in Maryland, there are three subsections for first-degree assault. I don't think it changes the analysis in this decision, though. Continuing on, Maryland law makes clear that a prosecutor need not identify which subsection, subsections 1 or 2, a defendant violated in the indictment. Further indicates no divisibility, quote, strongly, end quote. So too, case law and the pattern jury instructions in Maryland indicate that juries are not instructed and need not agree as to how exactly someone committed the assault. It's sufficient to convict that the jury believed that the defendant did at least one of the ways, that is, use of a firearm to commit assault, or intend to cause serious injury in the commission of an assault. Those are the two ways. 
The case law is tricky, but the Fourth Circuit doesn't believe that a jury needed to decide unanimously which way a defendant committed the assault. To be honest, that's conclusive on divisibility to the Fourth Circuit. It doesn't matter to the court that some Maryland lower courts have actually used the word element to describe the two ways of committing the offense. And after all, if the statute is made up of elements rather than means, then that's a divisible statute. But those courts were a bit fast and loose with their language, explained the Fourth Circuit. And the court did a bit of a deeper dive into the statute than did those courts, it seems. Ultimately, quote, the state's actions in charging first-degree assault, as well as the trial court's actions in instructing juries, matter far more than the mere words the appellate courts use in describing the offense. The focal point of the divisibility analysis is what the jury must find or a defendant must admit to convict, end quote. The Fourth Circuit doesn't believe that Maryland juries need differentiate between the ways a person violated the assault statute, which makes it easier for prosecutors to convict, as I was saying. But it makes the statute indivisible. And for sentence enhancement and immigration purposes, that is step one in the direction of favoring criminal defendants and non-citizens. All well and good. But it doesn't matter if both ways of committing this indivisible assault offense are violent felonies. But they're not. That's why the Fourth Circuit reversed and remanded. Because to summarize, under Maryland law, the assault statute encompasses battery. And at common law, battery includes, quote, unlawful application of force to the person of another, which could be intentional or unintentional. End quote. Now, to qualify as a first-degree assault, there must be some aggravating factor like use of a firearm. Fine. But that still means that the statute, even with the aggravating factor of, say, use of a firearm, can be violated through unintentional conduct. To the Fourth Circuit, unintentional conduct smells a lot like reckless conduct, which Bourdain explains cannot satisfy the violent felony or crime of violence definitions. Ipso facto, the least culpable conduct criminalized by first-degree Maryland assault, the indivisible Maryland assault, does not satisfy the violent felony definition, and so Mr. Red's conviction can't be enhanced for his Maryland conviction. He wouldn't be removable as an aggravated felony either if he was, say, a lawful permanent resident. And that, folks, is how you do it. Quote, the statute's reference to a firearm, end quote, does not mean, as the government argued here, that courts, quote, can infer an intent to cause harm element, end quote. Not gonna lie, I seem to recall some recent BIA decisions that might indicate a bit of a contrary view, but I can't recall which one or ones at this time. It is not the case that, quote, specific intent to harm may be inferred from the pointing of a firearm at the body of a victim. End quote. To be sure, the serious physical injury way of committing this offense and the new strangulation type first degree assault does require specific intent. But the assault with a firearm, the second way at the time of Mr. Red's conviction and the third way now, does not. It allows for a reckless mens rea. And again, the statute's indivisible, so Mr. Red wins doesn't matter how he personally did the crime. Heck, actually and apparently, even the BIA similarly held in a recent unpublished decision. So there you go. And so no, while Mr. Red did have a serious drug offense as well, it actually wasn't at issue in this case. I just wanted to make that B.I.G. pun. Meaning, 
Congratulations to Parrish S. Patel and the Maryland Office of the Federal Public Defender for the win. Here's more in this complicated but important decision. The most recent and important divisibility case out of the Supreme Court is Mathis. In Mathis, the Supreme Court permitted, to my knowledge for the first time, that courts look at the conviction documents during the categorical approach to determine divisibility, the Mathis peak that I sometimes talk about. But Mathis made quite clear that the peak is a last resort, and it's limited, or as the Fourth Circuit says here, quote, If, after consulting the statutory text and other state law sources, it remains unclear whether the alternatives are means or elements, we may peek at the record of the prior conviction, for instance, the charging documents and jury instructions used in the defendant's case, to determine whether the statute is divisible. We consult these sources only if state law fails to provide clear answers and for the sole and limited purpose of determining whether the statutory alternatives are elements or means, not to examine how the defendant's particular crime was committed, end quote. Emphasis by the court and a helpful reminder. It didn't matter here, it appears at least, that Mr. Red's charging document was specific as to the way he committed the offense, and it probably was going to be a violent felony. On divisibility, the court believed the statute, jury instructions, and other things are to be reviewed before a Mathis peak, and here they were determinative. Important stuff. Also, continuing on from my thread of oddly named state courts from a few weeks ago, quote, Effective December 14th, 2022. The Court of Appeals of Maryland has been renamed the Supreme Court of Maryland, and the Court of Special Appeals of Maryland has been renamed the Appellate Court of Maryland, end quote. Good luck, everyone. And that is USA v. Red. Concluding then with Pacheco Moda v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on October 18th, 2023. It's a fairly short case on asylum. As the Eighth Circuit explains, quote, Mr. Pacheco Mota is a 23-year-old Guatemalan citizen who fears returning to his home country, end quote. Growing up, gang members would steal his grandparents' cows that he tended to and left behind threatening signs. He was present during at least one of the threats and attempted steals, and gang members threatened to kill Mr. Pacheco Mota. Quote, gang members also stole cows from other farms in the neighborhood, kidnapped one of Mr. Pachecomoto's friends, and held him for ransom, extorted money from people in the nearby town, and tortured and killed those who would not allow themselves to be extorted. End quote. Guatemala is small and the gangs are all over it. Mr. Pachecomoto fled at 17 years old. Does U.S. asylum law protect such people? Not if it's not actually persecution on account of a protected ground. So Mr. Pachecomoto crafted his particular social group, one of the five protected grounds, as, quote, Guatemalan children who are witnesses of gang crime, end quote. Neither the immigration judge nor the BIA thought that that was a viable particular social group, no matter the risk of death, and so denied asylum. The Eighth Circuit affirmed. Of course, as a refresher, to demonstrate membership in a cognizable particular social group, the applicant must establish that the group is 1. Composed of members who share a common, immutable characteristic, 2. Defined with particularity, and 3. Socially distinct within the society in question. 
Does Guatemalan children who are witnesses of gang crime fit the bill? The BIA, quote, rejected this proposed social group for lack of particularity because the term children is vague and amorphous, end quote. The Eighth Circuit agreed. Not only that, but if that's the group, Mr. Pachecomoda has now aged out, and he cannot have a well-founded fear based on his membership in that group anymore, because he's not a child anymore. So reasoned the Eighth Circuit. In any case, to the court, a group composed of, quote, any person of any age who is the child of Guatemalan parents is far too amorphous and overbroad to satisfy the particularity requirement, end quote. Probably not in the Fourth Circuit, though, based on what that circuit requires of particularity. But anyway, to the Eighth Circuit, the group is also not socially distinct, as Mr. Pacheco Mota, quote, did not introduce evidence establishing that Guatemalan society in general perceives, considers, or recognizes persons sharing the particular characteristic of gang crime witnesses as a distinct group, end quote. Gotta show the court how a foreign country views a group to succeed on social distinction. At base to the panel and in the Eighth Circuit, quote, witnessing a crime by itself is not enough to establish membership in a particular social group, end quote. Therefore, and no matter the risk of harm Mr. Pacheco Mota faces in Guatemala, he can't get asylum. So the Eighth Circuit dismissed the petition for review. And that is Pacheco Mota v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, Feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all, and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, or send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M, Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.